internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, after that was Sarah, I think you can agree that was the most ridiculously complicated uh, audio mm-hmm. setup I've ever been through. Um, yeah, it definitely yeah, was. It, it, it was the blind <laughs> leading the blinder, I think would be fair. Yeah, we were just discussing before we hit record. I'm here with Sarah Ferris from the uh, the Clueless podcast spelled K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Um, interested and you'll explain. We'll explain why later. It's It's spelled that way. Um, but neither of us understand technology hardly at all. And so we decided, you know how we can make this work? Let's figure out the most complicated possible way <laughs> to set up the audio. Uh, <laughs> so we nailed the brief. Th- yeah, yeah, we got it. Yeah. So hopefully this is all this is all gonna work out and it'll sound it'll sound super clean. Uh, but Sarah, thanks for joining me all the way from you're in you're in London, right? I am in London, yeah. Um and and you are but you're from New Zealand. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm originally from New Zealand, but I've been in London for about uh, almost twelve years now. Okay, so and and when we're speaking, I don't know when everybody's going to hear this, but uh, CrimeCon UK just happened. Um, I was I was thought about going, but it was just, it was too close to the other CrimeCon. It's just too much travel and stuff for me. But you you said there. There was a, a near disaster at CrimeCon in London this year. Honestly, um, it was snatched from the jaws of defeat from the most amazing CrimeCon team. But we had an actual fire on the on the on the Saturday night of CrimeCon, and I mean you couldn't have paid for it. We literally had flames and a cordoned off scene outside the CrimeCon building. So people were kind of thinking, "Oh, is this all part of the experience?" But honestly, the the team at CrimeCon did so well, so um, we managed to to crack on and. At an amazing event. Yeah, it's great. I love Crime awesome. Con. You so can never have, have too many. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking a fire fire. Like, you guys were outside and could see flames from outside? We couldn't see flames from outside, but it was coming, billowing up from the kitchen, apparently, underneath. So, yeah, I think it was an electrical fl- fire because um, I think then after that, we we sort of were using our torches and things like that. It felt very much yeah. like a detective and a crime scene sort of situation <laughs> afterwards. So I think everybody got just a little bit of, we should have been, you know, had to pay more for those tickets to be fair. Right. So this happened Saturday night. night. Did did the event continue then with no power or did the power eventually come back on? Well, the the hotel didn't get the power back on, but the crime con crew managed to like sweep and I don't know where they got them from on a Sunday morning, but lights to light the hallway so people could actually access the building. So, yeah, they did amazing, and we managed to catch up and get all of the content that was on the schedule back on track by sort of mid-afternoon, and and away we went. So, yeah, it was great. Nice. Did you happen to come across – I have two very good friends in London that I know were there, uh, um, uh, Kayla and Lindsay, and they run the Just Killing Time, uh, like the subscription box deal. Did you come, come across them at all? Well, no, because I was pretty much chained to the podcast row, and I don't think they were uh-huh. in podcast row. I think they might have been on the level below us, so I didn't get yeah, out probably. much. Either I was either doing a podcast live or, you know, chained to my desk. There, they're the ones that brought me over to uh, do my UK tour a few years ago. 
very oh, cool okay. people and they they do like a they do like a monthly subscription box where you get like every month they send you you know all kinds of true crime paraphernalia and goodies and stuff every month uh that's just killingtime.org i think people not a sponsor but check them out um they're from <laughs> they're based out of the uk uh and so, so Sarah, you, you, you make, I mean, you make all kinds of podcasts. You've been making podcasts for, for a minute. Uh, I see that you current, is, is it you host? Is it currently or already did? There's two other true crime podcasts, Stop the Killing and yeah. Conning the Con. Are those still ongoing? Well, so Conning the Con is the reason that I ended up doing podcasts in the first place. And I, it only came out uh-huh. about a year and a half ago. And mm-hmm. it probably makes sense to, for me to tell you that the, why I did that one because um, and how I ended up in podcasting from that point because okay. Conning the Con was actually the true story of my little sister's experience of dating a serial con man. So mm-hmm. um, she had swiped right on Tinder, as you do. She dated a guy mm-hmm. for six months and then the day after she'd put like a chunk of change into his bank account for a property investment was the day that she discovered his actual real identity, his real name, that he was a serial fraudster and he was just out of prison. But the kicker was he didn't realise she'd discovered his real identity at that stage. So we actually hit record and spent the next two and a half months taking down the con man. So we turned, hence the name, conning the con. So, Uh yeah, that's my entry into, into podcasting. And um, I didn't have any background in podcasting. And, and when we were living this experience with this con man, which got very intense, like he'd fled the country, we had to lure him back. There was a lot going on. My sister and I said, we're living in a Netflix documentary. We need to be recording it. And I said, <laughs> I don't think I can do a documentary, but maybe I can work out on GarageBand how to do a podcast. So, um, yeah, we sat on the, the content that we'd had recorded for about uh, a year and then seesawing whether or not we wanted to share the story because it's obviously a very personal story um, mm-hmm. and, and scared about how people would react to it. People are very much, a, you know, there's a lot of shame and um, myths about how people are conned. But we did share it. And then, yeah, so that's, that's how Conning the Con came out. So that is actually a completed series that's already out and, and you can binge that whenever you want. Did you, when you decided to record, when you guys were were conning the con artist, were you recording him with the intention of making a a podcast or were you recording him just to get it all on recorded then later decided, hey, this could be a podcast? Well, what happened was we didn't record him because he never, ever contacted by phone ever again. He was all via email after that. So Uh we have an actor that voices his emails and his autobiography, the Tonka trilogy, which he gave us, which is just Uh a little bit of comedy gold. Um, And (laughs) we were recording, it was almost like reaction videos to it as it unfolded. We were just like, you know, he would, he sent my sister his autobiography to explain that, I don't want to give too much away, but, and he explained lots of things about his life that led him to the point that he was at um, and why he should still be getting her money essentially. Um, And Emma would, my sister Emma would get these like emails through and just dial me right up and we would just hit record and uh-huh. she'd read them fresh to me and I'd be like, oh my goodness, this is absolutely batshit, absolutely crazy. So yeah. And then the podcast has a lot of other voices in it that we've, that I since sort of, we interviewed and sure. brought in a psychologist as well who runs through it and discusses the red flags. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of sound, lots of it's texturally 
a lot of voices in it. All I was thinking is you said that you guys just like called each other up and real quick hit record. And I was thinking that didn't go that smoothly when I tried to call you up this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the difference there is, Bob, I'm a bit of a control freak. So what you don't realize is that you ended up doing it my way uh, at the end of the thing. And uh, Wait, that did happen, didn't it? It did happen. Yeah, I totally I was like, this is how we do it. And you're like, no. I'm going to need your, like, that's the whole, like, uh, dumb like a fox. Like, I just can't figure this out, so why don't you do it my way? You tricked me. You conned me. I learned a few tricks along the way. What what can I say? (laughs) What can I say? So, so conning the con, which which after you've explained this to me, I need to go listen to now. That sounds sounds incredible. Uh, You have that, and then you have Stop the Killing, which is a short-form podcast, and you're with... um, uh, the former head of the FBI's act- active shooter program is, is like your co-host. How, how does that happen? <laughs> Do you know what's hilarious? So when I was at CrimeCon, anytime I'm ever talking to people about it and I say, conning the con, this is the story, fell into podcasting and they go, oh, tell me about Stop the Killing. They never once expect me to say, oh, I do a podcast with the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit, because they're just like, this woman is clearly a Muppet. How would that connection happen? But <laughs> <laughs> but it did. What can I say? So uh, Catherine and I met on an app, and um, it was an app that was for creators. So when Con in the Con happened, it kind of got quite a lot of, like, ears on it. It was um, quite successful, like, really fast. We didn't know it was going to happen. And it actually, it, um, not to blow my own trumpet, just to know it's not really crap, it did come runner-up at the International <laughs> Women's Podcast Awards for cliffhanger drama. So what happened is somebody had said, um, as a creator, can you come onto this app? And we did a Zoom call with other creators and Catherine happened to be on that Zoom call. And she said, I said, look, I don't know why I'm on this app. I'm an imposter. I've never done podcasts before, so I don't know why I'm here, as they went around the group. And then she said when it came to her turn to answer the same question, which was, why are you wanting to come on this app? She said, I'm an imposter too, like Sarah. And then she proceeded to say, I'm the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And I went, well, clearly this woman doesn't even know what imposter syndrome is because she deserves to be there 100%. And then the second thing I thought was I need to do an interview with her. And when we did, I stalked her a little bit on Twitter. And when we actually connected, we had a conversation. She said, I've always wanted to do a podcast. And I said, um, well, you know, I've kind of worked it out. And and we just connected that way and we really meshed and gelled and we were kind of like, well, we could really get the message out there. I'm a listener. You've got a story. You've got the information, the research, and we just want to be able to give that information out in the most consumable way so that people have the facts about mass shootings. And that's how it kind of happened. So we had, we've already released season one of that and um, – Season two is just starting. We've released last week and we've got incredible guests on that, like the former principal of Columbine High School. We've got a woman that stopped a mass shooting in a school just with her voice for 90 minutes. She talked down a child with a loaded gun in her office um, and parents of the Parkland school shootings. We've got professors of criminology. So it's just really jam-packed with information that we can hopefully give people the facts so they can feel informed. That's the idea of it. And yeah, so that one comes out as a case each episode, essentially. It's super cool. So, so I mean, essentially, you and Catherine are on an app. You both swipe right. And then yeah. 
you have. Uh, I think she swiped left podcast. initially on me. <laughs> I just she had kept to stalk stalking her a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I'm nothing if not uh, persistent. Then... You've already fallen for my <laughs> gaslighting charms, Bob. We know this, <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like I don't know how to work my own computer right now, and you I don't. don't. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, and you're not done there. You also you have another podcast that's not true crime related called Guilty Greenie. Oh. Is that one still ongoing too? Yeah, I'm just still, uh, I'm just recording season two of that at the moment as well. So on that same app, I uh, was doing a show that was called Community, and it was basically a bit of a laugh. And we would have like two truths and a lie, and we'd have test the audience to see how well they could actually spot a lie that was being fed to them. Um, and on that, I met I met um, an American uh, sustainability influencer and and writer, and I she she's a a greenie and she had all the knowledge and I was kind of like my goodness like you could really train me to stop crapping all over this planet maybe we should do something together and so that's how the guilty greenie came about and we kind of you know we (laughs) she gives me a challenge that my family and I complete every week which I record the results to which is um varies from successful to hilarious pretty much because I've got (laughs) um you know some stubborn teens in there as well so yeah it's good fun we really like it. And and I'm learning all the way along. All the podcasts sure. that I do are pretty much I want to come out of it like just learning something. So that's my purpose. So you're that's one, two, three plus clues. That's four podcasts you have going all within the last couple of years. What did you do before that? Like, like you, you said you didn't have any audio background or anything. Like, what no. were you in the media space? What did you do before all this? No, I have a property business. So I basically, you know, did flipping of properties, that kind of thing, uh, property development. Um, and I still do that. And, um, yeah, so I think that's probably – it gives me a bit of space to be able to do that because I work for myself. But, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sometimes it's been like a year and a half since this, and I think sometimes I look at my life and go, "How the heck have I en- ended up here?" But um, I am, and I enjoy it. I had the same thing. I mean, I was a fireman. The next thing yeah. I was a podcaster. I mean, yeah, it's a yeah, it's it's a interesting. It's always it's always an odd conversation with people. Like, what do you do now? Like, listen, it was a. I don't really want to talk about it. It's a weird story. It's not where I expected to be, but this is just this just is what it what it is now. Are the are the real estate prices in the UK like insane right now like they are in the US or is that just a US thing? No, no, no. 18-year property cycle. Let me tell you, that's another podcast, but <laughs> definitely yeah. we're going up to the boom stage right now and uh yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what, New Zealand where I'm from, they have had the most ridiculous price growth in in the last like year. It's gone up something like fifty percent. Oh, that's nothing. And the U in the U.S. I mean, at least in, in our area here in the Midwest, like house prices have doubled Man. in like one hundred percent gain over a two year period. I mean, and and you see it all. Wow. You see people listing houses for six hundred thousand dollars, and you can look on Zillow and see they bought the house two years ago for two hundred fifty thousand, and then mm. they're selling for over asking. Like it's it's insane. I didn't know. <laughs> no, well, I'm it's definitely, I, I think it's that um, built up tension after COVID as well. Everybody was like, oh, everything's going to crash. Everything's going to burn. But there's just been this appetite for people to kind of either expand their living spaces because we're all living in the and working in our houses. Um, yeah. So people have really shifted in, in, in what they want. So, yeah, no, I think it's happening everywhere, Bob. Yeah, it was like this, at least here, it was like this perfect storm of, you know, when when, when we all should have been probably feeling a little pain during COVID is like, no, we just keep printing money until everybody's, everybody's got plenty of money. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, it's just, anyway, it's great. I was just curious what, how that, 
what's going on in other in other countries with it because it's in I keep getting told by my friend because I have I have um, so I actually liquidated my rental property because I was like I'm I'm probably never going to see this price of it again yeah you know, in the next twenty years so I got rid of it yeah um but I have friends that are also in 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 uh, real estate that are like no this is the new normal and I'm like I, this feels an awful lot like a bubble to me so. Oh, you know what? Well, anyway. After this, after this, we'll get on on another call and we'll have a chat about the eighteen year property cycle. But that's a whole yeah, like you podcast. like like I don't really want to talk about. I want to just talk about that now. But I think <laughs> we should move on for the audience. I'm like eighteen year cycle. Do tell. Oh my goodness! <laughs> that's the only that's the only friends. other podcast experience that I had was I had been on a property podcast as a guest at times. So that would be the only uh, only window into podcasting that I'd had. True or false, we should expect in the next couple of years these prices to come plummeting down. Um, I would say it's predicted. And look, you know, I'm no expert, but if you stick to the 18-year property cycle, 2026 in, in London is probably looking where you want to get out of. That's what we call the winner's curse is where uh-huh. you might buy at the top of the cycle. But with anything with property, if you hold it long enough, people, it will come right if you've bought it in somewhere that's not horrific. Right. Get your tips here. Sign up to my property podcast, which I don't actually yeah. have, but I've got an opening yeah. for one more in my life. Listen, Sarah, you and I will start a podcast all about uh, real estate <laughs> property. I have no background or no expertise no, whatsoever, neither. which, you know, that's never stopped me from making a podcast about something. We'll just go <laughs> just, just go with it. I think I'm proof of the pudding that that's true. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. All right. So now tell me, so, so you're... The podcast we are talking about today is called Clueless, the Long Con. And again, Clueless is K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S, uh, named after Barry Clue, who is our uh, going to be our subject today. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. it covers the story of one of the largest Ponzi schemes in New Zealand history. And again, you have your family gets conned a lot. I um, know. And, yeah, because this, 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 again, has a connection to your family. So you right. can explain like what the podcast is about. Yeah, where to start with that one? So um, a month after my little sister Emma had discovered that she was dating this serial con man, my parents-in-law, so, you know, related on my husband's side of the family, discovered mm-hmm. that they were in this Ponzi scheme that they had actually been with an authorised financial advisor. So he was government approved mm-hmm. and he had actually known them for 40 years um, and Hadn't really, yeah, so 40, hence the name Clueless the Long Con. And as you alluded Mm -hmm. to, his name is Barry Clue, uh, spelled K-L-O-O-G-H. So the only good thing that man ever did was give me that brilliant pun for a title. Um, It's a perfect, clever name. I love it. I know. God, he just like served that up on a platter for me, I swear. Uh, So (laughs) there was 81 victims and and $16 million that, that went west. And what he really did was... He kind of groomed an entire town in New Zealand for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would start with, um, he had several kind of methods in his playbook. But what he tended to do is because he had such a long time before he got caught, he would start with things like an insurance policy and then, you know, build the confidence. And then over time, that young family that had taken out an insurance policy would be ready to have a little bit more money, they've paid off their mortgage. So they would then have some money to invest. And who are they going to go to but this financial advisor that has done the insurance policy for them maybe 10 years beforehand? Mm-hmm. 
So he like he just gently groomed people in so many different ways, and he was very much embedded in the community. He was in the like operatic societies, very much into amateur dramatics, and yeah, I mean, like what he ended up doing was almost doing a life cycle of people start with the insurance policy and end up with their um, raping their entire life savings, their retirement funds. And if you think about it, forty years people have aged into retirement. So by the time Barry Clue has got hold of all of your money, you're at the end of your ability to work and earn that money back. And what happened is when his when his whole scheme came falling down, the stories in it are so horrific that, you know, they, they really stay with you. In particular one that just one of them that I really touched me in, entirely was um a 70-year-old man who had been retired for 18 months before Barry Clue's scheme had come crashing down. He has stage four cancer um, and at the age of 70 has to work full-time because he has no other form of income whilst doing chemotherapy and, you know, all of his cancer treatments. He has to just keep on working through it. And these people weren't like a Bernie Madoff kind of scheme where you had to have sort of $400 to, to get into the scheme. These are just uh-huh. just salt of the earth, hardworking people that scrimped and saved over their lifetime and trusted a man who was government authorised to actually, you know, go to them. As the government advises you to do, go and get proper advice from somebody who's authorised so that you can be set up in your retirement. And he was just a complete con man. So in the podcast, we have um, a forensic psychiatrist on it who, um, if you have ever or ever make it to London Crime Con, you will know he's quite a quite the man about town at London Crime Con, Dr. Shaholm Das. And he is um, a forensic psychiatrist that's worked in Broadmoor. He's uh, written a book. He's got an incredible YouTube channel as well called A Psych for Sore Minds. And he unpacks all that kind of um, psychopathic behaviour that it takes for somebody to do that to people that he knows so well. So, yeah, yeah. So that's hopefully I've explained that a little bit. Yeah, so for forty years was I'm curious what his what the the forensic psychiatrist views were on that because like he had to have made because because this was was this a true Ponzi scheme where like there never actually was an investment so he's taking money and telling people that he's investing it and then there's just no investment he's just taking it and then taking somebody else's and if somebody wants to cash out he takes some of your money and gives them some of that money to try to give the impression that things are moving along like the hamster wheel so you've always got to keep it fed and to keep it turning well mm-hmm. he actually managed to find a loophole in the system so what he managed to do is and i mean i don't want to leave too much on the podcast because it is i do go into it in more depth so that you can understand it because it's quite complicated at times but there was a system that was like an online ledger and in one instance it was it was almost like um, I'm trying hard to, it's really hard to explain it, but essentially it's like an Excel spreadsheet for a financial advisor who can then keep a track uh-huh. of everybody's investments over a portfolio. Now, some of those investments you could actually make on that platform legitimately, and he would do that. Uh-huh. Others you could just write in so that as an investment, like a uh, financial advisor, you knew that that same client had that amount of money with you supposedly invested as well. Anything that was in the other column, uh, in what was called the external column, was just fake money. He'd stolen it, he'd written it off. But what he also did was he, over the years, worked out ways to get legitimately invested shares 
from the investors that were on the platform legitimately and and bring them into the other column, which was the fake Ponzi scheme. Like, as you say, you know, it's just in and out feeding fake money to fake, yeah, fake accounts, et cetera. The part that's fascinating with that is like, when, when is enough enough? Because he ended up stealing, what, $16 million? Mm-hmm. Like, at some point, mm-hmm. you know, is, is it just greed? Is it just, it's just, Something is just totally wrong with this guy. Like, why, why when he hit five million or ten million, didn't he say, "Okay, now I'm going to take off to the Cayman Islands and disappear"? Yeah, but he's st- he continues to do it for forty years until he has sixty sixteen million dollars, and then eventually he gets caught. Well, I think I mean the the psychiatrist would say that you know somebody that's displaying that psychopathic behavior, the element of risk is so much different from you and I. They live in uh-huh. that space of just like always on the red line where you and I would be uh-huh. sweating bullets. That is their resting bitch face. Like that is literally how they operate all the time. So it's getting inside that mind of somebody. And I think that's the hardest thing for other people to understand because then as an investor, this person is actively acting like a normal person on the outside, but the internal workings mm-hmm. of their mind is just so different from you and I. Well, I say you and I. I've only just met you. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, I'm I assuming very well could Bob, be a psychopath. Exactly. Right. So could I. <laughs> assuming that I'm a normie. Yeah. Uh, like I'm, I'm you know, like I look at it like, what's the what's the, the the end goal? Like, or is he just addicted to the process at some point? Well, he very much liked the trappings of this life. So he had the fast cars. He had the overseas holidays. He had a full family, for example, um, and he had a business that he ran um, and. You know, his, his family worked in that business as well. So he was so mm-hmm. much, Im- he was very much embedded in the community, but he did have an end plan that he told the victims um, eventually. His end plan was that he was going to, and I mean, it's as ridiculous as it sounds, he was just basically going to, over the next two years or whatever years, going to make $2 million and uh, start paying back the elderly first so that when they retired they would be able to pull out of this fake ponzi scheme and fine and what he didn't realize when he was saying this to the victims as his solution was barry you're just describing an ongoing ponzi scheme because you're paying the top people in the pyramid again where's the money from the bottom of the pyramid coming from you just got to bring in more victims each time so there was no way out it was it was just how long you could get away with it for and after 40 years mate you think you're in the clear. Right. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. It, and uh, well, well, I would say luckily for the victims, but it really still didn't work out for them. Um, no. He got caught before he he did run away with everybody's money. But then like your your family was conned out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And and the victims, I mean, he's he's got he's going to die in prison, right? He was sentenced to what, 80 years in prison, something like that. <laughs> Are you taking the Mickey? He got, I think I, oh, I can't even tell you the exact sentence, but it was something so minimal. So, well, in my mind, let me, let me clarify. He got, the scales of justice got him. What did you, did you just read? It's eight years that he got. I I read Erica's note wrong. And I assume because this is so awful, it was 80, but I see now that (laughs) it says he was sentenced to eight years. Yeah. Do you know what's really, I mean, that's what you you weigh up the scales of justice on one side, you put $15 million and 81 victims. And then what does that actually equate to? Oh, eight years. He'll be out in five now. Uh, and he'll be able to go back and and 
you know, live a life, whereas all of these people are left holding the baby, essentially. They've got nothing. Yeah, because they got, um, with the compensation that they got when this was over with, they got, what, two and a half cents per dollar, approximately, of what they had lost. And that's yet to be seen. I don't think that'll even come to fruition because the process of getting that money out is... um, it's it's just so difficult. There was nothing left. Either he's hidden it. I mean, the the real big question is what happened to the money. But nobody right. not. I mean, like the forensic trail that happened, it just looks like it was frittered away. And and either keeping the Ponzi scheme going. So part of it was, you know, people taking money out, people putting money mm-hmm. in, and then it was coming out the other side. And then he was living this lifestyle where you know he had all these least expensive cars. He was doing holidays all over the world. Yeah. He just spent it all. Just spunked the money. That's terrible. Well, I, how how did it work out for your parents? I mean, you know, your parents lost a significant chunk of money. Were they diversified enough that they were able to yes. still, like, take the loss and move on with their retirement? Yeah, I well, I mean, they would, would say that. completely that, devastated. Yeah, I mean, seriously, regardless of how much money they lost or if they had anything to, to carry on with, the, the mental and emotional trauma of having um, it happen to them and all of the other victims is mm-hmm. heavy, very heavy. Um, and they were lucky enough that they had diversified a little bit, you know, so they, they've, they're not going to be brought to their knees by this. However, a lot of the other victims have been brought to their knees by it. Um, and particularly episode four in the, in the podcast, people say, why didn't you warn me to hydrate first before that episode? Because it's really, uh-huh. really unbelievable what he does. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's a man in there that loses $45,000, and he said, I, I, I feel lucky I only lost $45,000 compared to the other victims. So at what point well, in life has that become you feel lucky? I think that puts in perspective how much pain there is that he's caused. Yeah. And a lot of it just depends on yeah, what percentage, like what, how much of that were you counting on for your retirement? Because it, it, I'm just thinking like through my mind how hard – that would be like you said, like emotionally to go through that mm-hmm. because every dime that's in that retirement account that you've been saving means that that's, that's a sacrifice you made along the way. Like when you uh-huh. decided, I don't want to take this money and buy a car now, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice now so that I can be able to rejo- enjoy retirement later. There's a lot that goes into that. And then to find at the end, like someone just stole all your money and all that sacrifice was for nothing and you have yeah. nothing, nothing left. It's, it's and, awful. And like you say, I mean, that's exactly what I say in the podcast. You're right on there, Bob. It's like literally all those opportunity cost moments where you have, you know, mm-hmm. some of them, are, some of those people worked their weekends away from their children, missed games so that they could make a little bit of extra bucks to stick it in the retirement fund. And, and when you say, um, had they diversified? That's exactly what they thought they were doing. They were investing mm-hmm. in what they believed were diversified portfolios from a financial advisor that was giving them a way to spread their bets. And they were not, by any stretch of the imagination, high return investments. You know, these were people that were sensible and were like literally, you know, low to medium risk portfolios with different shares, blue chip shares. They, they were investing in what they believed were blue chip shares. Um, but it was all a lie, all a lie. 
Was there any accountability from the government who put their stamp of approval on this fella? Well, that's an interesting little uh, question because it's a bit of an elephant in the room, isn't it? Um, it's the first question right. that I kind of was like, hello, how did this happen with mm-hmm. a rubber stamped? And then it comes back to that uh, question of what does authorised mean? And that is where I kind of landed at the end of the series with, Something that reminded me of, of I, I learned it in fifth form economics. So when I was 15 in, in economics class, there was a saying in Latin, and I remember it really vividly, and it was caveat emptor, and it means may the buyer beware. Mm-hmm. And it was literally that moment for me where I thought, you cannot trust a government approved. You need to know what that is. Uh, and it, it's really about understanding what the auditing process is for any of those systems in your own country. Um, And, you know, we go through it in the podcast as well. You know, the little banking tricks that he used, just little simple everyday frauds as well that, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And we have similar issues here. Like I have um, some investments that I have right now are being affected by our, uh, our securities and exchange commission, which I believe, I believe is the most corrupt organization in in, (laughs) the In the United States, it's, a, it's incredible uh, what they do and get away with. Um, but I, I've started the podcast. I'm looking forward to finishing it up. And I really want to I want to check out the conning the con. That sounds great. <laughs> Her name is Sarah Ferris. And the podcast is called Clueless. That's K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Clueless, the long con. Check it out along with her other podcast. And it could be your next big true crime binge. Sarah, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you today. You too, Bob. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.